You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, May 9th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Yo. And Evan Bernstein. Aloha, ahi, ahi. Did you say ahi, ahi? Back at you. Yes, I did, in fact. That's Hawaiian. Very good, Jay. That's a fish. Evan, is this going to be your new thing, saying hello in a different language every week? I like to learn about different things and new things, so I'm taking this opportunity to familiarize myself a little bit more with the, all the other languages of the earth that I, that I don't currently know. Mm-hmm. So I thought okay. this might be a good little, uh, good little way of doing that. So in a, in a few hundred episodes, we're going to run out of ways to say hello? <laughs> oh, no. Then we'll move on to things like Vulcan and Klingon and some other things, so... Well, Evan, tell us about this day in skepticism. Yeah, May 14th, 1796. English physician Edward Jenner administered the first vaccination against smallpox to an eight-year-old boy. And then a few weeks later, on the 1st of July, he subsequently tested the boy's resistance to smallpox by inoculating uh, him with smallpox virus. Fortunately, the immunization was successful. (laughs) And two days after that, someone accused him of using vaccinations to... Uh, as a form of mind control. And that it causes autism, yes. Jenner invented the term vaccination, but he was not the first physician to administer a vaccination. It had been done about a half dozen times on record prior to that. But Jenner is still considered the father of immunology. How did he come up with that word? It came from the variola vaccinae. It comes from the Latin for cow, because the first vaccine was derived from a virus affecting cows. Yeah, it was the cowpox. Mm-hmm. It was. Virus, which is close enough to the smallpox virus that it conferred resistance to it. So, so this guy, did he actually do the research and, and he invented the vaccination or he just happened to be the guy to give it? Well, he came up with the idea. So he noticed that people, or it was reported that people who had previously had a mild case of cowpox were, were somehow immune to the smallpox. So he, he took just some pus from the scabs of somebody who had the cowpox, pus and that's, cool. what, that's what he used to inoculate the boy. Basically, he gave him a, a case of cowpox. Now, how ethical is that? Even it's for totally time? unethical. Not very. Yeah, could, I mean, even it, for 1796, <laughs> if you think about it. He's still glad he did it. Yeah, when you think back, you know, wow, he injected the kid with pus. So much for the phase one and two trials, right? You get right to uh, phase three, right. phase four, and you, and you go. <laughs> yeah, right. We start with human testing. Oh, the good old days. So, Bob, it turns out that Einstein was right after all. Oh, he's going to be th- relieved. Who would have thunk it? Um, yeah, yet again, predictions made by Einstein uh, through theories of relativity have been vindicated. The two key predictions by general relativity that, that, that the space-time fabric of the universe is distorted by the mass of objects and is swirled around rotating objects have been shown to be true in controlled experiments that were 50 years in the making. Now, you know, why the hell don't we just concede Einstein's predictions are true and just to go from there, right? I mean, why, why waste <laughs> the time doing the experiment, right? Isn't this That's guy always right? That's not science works. Oh, um, my, you took, you took my next line right out of my mouth. Yeah, absolutely. Science doesn't work that way. We got we to do our homework. But it's just so funny. Like, yep, here we go. Here's another one. Well, it, gets, it does get to the relationship between theory and experiment. And to what extent does, do, does data and experiments drive theory? And to what extent does theory 
drive the experiments that we choose to do. And this, there, there are some examples in science where a theory just locked into place so many correct predictions that it dictated later experiments for a while. And Einstein and his theories of relativity was just you know one of those situations. Yeah, that, that's true. And the, the experiment's key, especially in this, because um, I, I think this latest vindication is very, very interesting for, for two reasons. One was that it was the experiment itself was such a tour de force, uh, almost like any other. And the other is just the idea itself uh, that we're talking about. It's just so so interesting and intriguing. Now, the, the idea that we're talking about here is that space-time, the space-time thing that we've we've all pretty much heard of space-time, that it's affected by mass and motion. Space-time, just a quick overview, is this fusion of the three spatial dimensions that we all know and love, and plus the dimension of time, all combined together into this one all-pervading fabric of the universe. Now, general relativity predicted that objects with, with mass and motion would distort this fabric in two specific ways. Now, one is the geodetic effect, which is just the warping of, of space itself by something that was that has mass. So the canonical example of, is the bowling ball on the trampoline, right? You see the bowling ball has mass. It puts this little dimple into the two-dimensional trampoline. Uh, of course, that's only this is all a two-dimensional representation. You kind of have to use your imagination. It's kind of hard to imagine it in three D. But the second now the second prediction deals with frame dragging, which is a little bit more obscure than the the warping. Now the frame dragging is just the vortex or swirling due to the rotation of say the Earth. For example, and a good example for that is this bowl is the bowling ball again. But this time, if you put the bowling ball in molasses and kind of spin the ball, you could imagine the molasses kind of being dragged along with the with the rotating ball. And that's kind of what what frame dragging is is all about. And this is exactly what these predictions are dealing with. Oh, so the molasses represents actual space time being kind of pulled, yeah, with the with the object. Yeah, because of the rotation. Yes, that's kind of that's a good visual, way to visualize it. That's weird. Okay, now these effects though are incredibly, incredibly tiny. Einstein himself wrote that their magnitude is so small that confirmation of them by lab experiments is not to be thought of. So see, he wasn't so smart after all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> silly Einstein. But now Einstein was dope. wrong. I can see I know. It on the front it's pages. so funny. He just it's, it's funny. I mean, he thought it was impossible and never going to happen. But uh of course, how could he possibly imagine uh you know, the experimental prowess that we have now? But uh the experiment itself though, like I said, it really this really was a tour de force. It was really surprising what what actually went into this experiment. The four little stars of the show are arguably the fused quartz spheres that were used as gyroscopes to maintain the, the orientation of this probe, this gravity probe B that's been in orbit. The Guinness Book of Records actually uh, designated these spheres as the most spherical objects uh, made by man. Uh, they're actually so spherical that they're, um, they vary from a true sphere by only 40 atomic layers. So There's a good are, Yo Mama joke uh, <laughs> in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> right. So these things are just incredibly round. Now, the gyros... But they do, they're gyroscopes, so they point the probe towards a specific direction. In this case, they're pointing it towards a star, which acted as a reference point. Um, okay. So this, the probe would always point towards a star, unless the space-time was warped by the, by the Earth. Now, it sounds easy, right? Not too hard? But in fact, this experiment yeah. was fiendishly difficult. NASA actually began funding, planning, and building uh, the gravity probe mission back in 1963, and it took all that time just to lay down the groundwork and finally launch the probe in 2004. And also, the um, this entire mission generated 13 new spacecraft technologies, uh, which were required to pull off producing uh, this unique spacecraft that merged 
uh, the, the usually distinct instrument guidance and control functions into one single system. So they had to develop whole new technologies just to, just to get this thing off the ground. Wait, one good point before I go. They actually had a good idea. They knew that frame dragging pretty much existed. I mean, just by observing black holes, I think, in 1997, they had a really good idea. They kind of confirmed it. But this was the first real confirmed experiment that said, yes, this is, this is an absolute certainty now. It's not just based on observation, but it was an actual controlled experiment. So, so Bob, to clarify a couple of things, when space-time is dragged behind, it eventually has to catch up and then kind of click back in to where it belongs, right? Like, is, there, is it almost creating a vacuum of space-time? No, it's just distorting it, Jay. Yeah. It's, it's just like, like the, a, the presence of the Earth distorts space-time, but it's not ripping it apart or creating gaps or vacuums or anything. Because in any case, space-time is continuous. Mm-hmm. Right. So what's left? I mean, what's le- what else can we possibly test of Einstein's theory? Yeah, did he make any to- other predictions that have yet to be confirmed experimentally? These uh, were the last two. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm sure there's, pl- there's plenty out there. Einstein's awesome. Will he finally, finally now get a freaking Nobel Prize for Oh, you can't get it if you're dead. You can't. You can't get well, it posthumously. Well, why don't we no give it to these guys who are alive who did this experiment? Maybe why not? Maybe be up for it. <laughs> they might. I mean, this, if any experiment deserves it, this does. I mean, you know, 50 years uh, to, to really uh, to finish this thing. It's amazing. Right? Well, I have some good news. Good news, everyone. Good news, everyone. <laughs> um, we don't often get to report on really good news uh, in the pseudoscientific arena. Do you guys know who Mark Gear is? Is that Richard Gear's older brother? Mark Gear is... Uh, uh, <laughs> The part of the father and t- and son gear team who are new- notorious uh, anti-vaccine cranks, in my opinion, and have been conducting the Lupron protocol. Uh, essentially, they claim that children with autism are vaccine injured and that they're more susceptible to mercury because of testosterone. And that's why boys have a higher rate of autism than girls. So they're treating children with autism with chemical castration, with a drug that blocks testosterone. Now why are these people quacks? And, and then chelating them, because they think that, that that helps the chelation therapy work better. Man. And so what, what are they actually doing to these kids? Like what, what happens to them when they grow up? You mean what are, what are the adverse effects? Well, chelation therapy is, is not safe. There have been deaths among children undergoing chelation therapy. And, you know, you've, you're taking a, uh, a young child and giving them and blocking their testosterone. There are substantial short-term and long-term adverse effects. They think that children with autism are, are being misdiagnosed and that they, in fact, have precocious puberty. What is that? It's when you get puberty early because of hormonal abnormalities. And they think chemically castrating these children is the way to deal with that? Because they think it helps the chelation therapy work better. So this is all nonsense. This is uh, terrible science. They haven't in any way come close to producing data which would justify giving this treatment to children. They ginned up a fake uh, institutional review board that they packed with their cronies, violating both federal and state regulations as to how you're supposed to conduct an, an IRB, an institutional review board. What is with anti-vaxxers and completely unethical 
treatment of children. It's, yeah, yeah, yes. It's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> it's I mean, this all just sounds exactly like Andrew Wakefield basically abusing children, even taking blood tests, you know, at a kid's birthday party and laughing about it. I mean, okay. and yet we're supposed to be the evil ones who are attempting to murder children. Steve's, Steve's follow... the baby eater, and yet yeah, this guy is castrating kids. So the, the good news is that the state of Maryland finally suspended Mark Gear's license to practice medicine. Yay. It's great. In the judgment, they concluded that he misrepresented his credentials because he basically was claiming to be a geneticist and an epidemiologist when he wasn't. He ordered extensive and expensive batteries of tests that were outside the standard of care, failed to properly examine patients, failed to provide adequate informed consent, used therapies not based on evidence and not supported by the medical community. That's all of alternative medicine, folks. Mm. Used an IRB that failed to meet state and federal guidelines and exploited patients and parents. Um, So this is a state board doing its job and yanking a license away from a notorious crank who was practicing quackery against children and exploiting them and their their families. Why'd the board do this? They did it because it's their job. Well, yeah. (laughs) This is what state boards do. Why'd they do their job? (laughs) I mean, how come not many? How come more boards aren't doing this? That's the real question. Yeah. How long was he practicing in oh, before they a did a long this? time? He also uh-huh. has licenses licenses in other states, so I don't know what the oh, immediate great. implications are going to be. They would all have to go through their own process. Steve, can he get sued? Can anything legal happen to him because of this? Sure. I mean, parent, you can always sue. I mean, there's you know, there's no real hurdle to suing. Okay, this is but in a case like this, the parents are likely on his side, not understanding yeah, that he was, you know, not actually doing anything to help them. It's it's very hard to get people who are victims of charlatans to either file a complaint or to sue because that involves admitting that they were dumb and that they took they were taken advantage of and you know what i mean yeah. so and usually they've or a lot of people are already probably being criticized by friends and families for doing something outside the mainstream and it it would be very hard for them to admit to everybody that they were taken in by a charlatan so it's or they just they're believers they believe whatever the charlatan is selling them so it's really hard to get people to specifically file complaints or enter into lawsuits that's why we need review boards to to hold them to the standard of care now in many states some people and practitioners in similar situations have actually gotten away uh, without any regulatory action because there are laws in those states that protect them from their from the from the review boards from the boards of health uh, there are so-called healthcare freedom laws that say essentially the boards health boards of the state cannot act against a practitioner's license simply for practicing quote unquote alternative medicine in other words medicine that is not based on evidence and not supported by the medical community that they eliminate that as a standard and therefore you're only left with you need a patient to file the specific complaint which rarely happens so essentially they legalize if you will the practice of anything without any standard of care this is not one of those states though so that this the, the board had the power to do this steve the article says his license is suspended it's not revoked does this mean that it goes through some next level of appeal there's a built-in appeal period that that's but i, I doubt it that he's going to be able to slip the noose on this one that's uh that's good news then good job maryland now, meanwhile, the son can continue to go ahead and do all the things the father was doing? The son was never a physician. 
Uh, and so the they have part, no jurisdiction part, over Part that. of the complaint was that the father was allowing the son to practice medicine without a license. Wow. Oh, okay. Very quickly, there's a news item just you know, popped up recently that I'll just, I'll just mention very quickly, which is related to this and that it's another vaccine issue. And the full story you can read on science-based medicine. David Gorski did an excellent job of summarizing this. But you may have heard, we got a lot of emails about this, about a new study which was just published purporting yeah. to show that countries with higher vaccine rates also have a higher infant mortality rate. Uh, have you guys heard that going around? Mm. Yeah, that story. Yep. The, here's the, the the skinny. It's a terrible study with numerous fatal flaws. There's a shocker. There's a shocker. <laughs> um, first of all, you you can't compare infant mortality rate from one country to the next because we use different methods. You know, the United States has a, a very high infant mortality rate comparatively, but that's because we count infant mortalities differently. We count every live birth that then dies as an infant mortality. By definition, it's any child that dies within the first year of life. Uh, So if we have a preemie that is born with the slightest signs of life that dies minutes later, that was an infant mortality. Mm. Many other countries would count that as a stillbirth, not an infant mortality. So comparing different countries to each other that are using, you know, that are counting infant mortality differently is, is essentially meaningless. Uh, it's quite possible that the uh, countries which have a more sophisticated healthcare system both tend to count their infant mortality higher and also vaccinate more, right? Right. They also, this, the statistics are terrible. They, they did weird things. They cherry-picked some of the... The, the data in that they they only counted the United States plus countries with a smaller infant mortality than the United States. They didn't include any countries with a larger infant mortality than the United States without any reason being given. Because we what? suspect that. Yeah, right? Just as a way of cherry picking the data. Yeah. That makes no just, sense. Just yeah. the data. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, there's, there's, there's a lot of things like that that really renders their conclusions invalid. And, and the, you know, the authors of this study are uh, anti-vaccinationists, right? They have a long history of, of being anti-vaccine. Uh, they don't really have the expertise necessary to, to pull off this kind of study. Uh, but even given, it, given that, you know, we don't dismiss the study outright simply because of that. We look at the details, and the details show it's worthless. Who published this study, Steve? Yeah, that, it was published in a peer-reviewed journal. It really shouldn't have been. It was a terrible study. But that's unfortunately that that you know occasionally they'll get one past the the goalposts as it were. Damn. Uh, so, but the, but of course the anti-vaccine sites are are creaming themselves over this study, right? They're just yeah, having they a get heyday. A yeah. Study. yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter that it's crappy. No one's going to remember that it's crappy. It's just going to be oh really? Yep. Just another vaccines? one to include on their you know yeah. list of studies to keep throwing at uh, doctors' faces and things. That's great. Right. Makes your job that much harder, right, Steve? Well, they're just—it's noise. It's you know, they're, yeah. it's they're generating bad data you know, that it that's um, a priori designed to support their end of things. Uh, but Jay, tell us about the moon microbe mystery. Moon. Did you guys ever hear about the moon microbe mystery? Was it a Scooby Doo episode? <laughs> <laughs> it would be perfect for a Scooby Doo. Maybe episode. like a Nancy Drew. 
So Apollo 12, uh, which uh, launched on November 19th in 1969, um, the astronauts landed on the moon in a location called the Ocean of Storms. And this happened to be very close to where Surveyor 3 landed. Surveyor 3 was the third lander of the Surveyor program, which was run by the USA, run by NASA. And these were unmanned landers that explored the surface of the moon. And they sent back images to Earth, and uh, they also were the first ones to basically pick up some moon soil and take photographs of it and send it back, which was pretty cool. And, of course, this was in preparation for the actual moon landing, the manned moon landing. So Surveyor 3 launched on April 17th of 1967, and I'll remind you I just said that Apollo 12 launched in November 19th, 1969. So the Apollo 12 astronauts, they made their way to the Surveyor. They retrieved its camera that had been sitting there in the dead of the moon surface for about two years. The camera was brought back to NASA, they put it in the lab, and they unexpectedly found small... A monolith. Oh. <laughs> and it was humming. They found a small col- colony of common bacteria, Streptococcus mitis, and that was inside the camera. So, of course, they're like, what's going on here? Where did this bacteria come from? The parameters that surround this, these are the stats that... They had to figure that bacteria had to be surviving in. They would have had to have survived the launch. They would have had to have survived the vacuum of space. They would have had to have existed for over two years of the exposure of the moon's surface and radiation. Yeah, the radiation really would have done done them in. The temperature on the moon in that part of the moon is minus 250 degrees Celsius. And they had no nutrition. There was no food or water for them. But back then, strangely, the Surveyor 3 camera team concluded that they found bacteria that survived on the moon for all those was years. It like contamination, though, after it was collected by the astronauts, I guess? Yeah, wouldn't that be the first? Sure, they guess. ruled that out. Well, that's what we think today, but, but at that time, they did not think that their lab, there was no reason to suspect contamination from their own lab. Silly. So the reason why we're talking about this is very recently researchers who were reviewing historical documents, images, and you know pretty much everything that we've collected from those missions, they found that the bacteria came from the lab without a doubt, that the camera was being studied, actually became contaminated by the, the researchers after they brought the camera back. So uh-huh. they did it in the lab when they were examining the original camera that was brought back in 1969. That's not good. How did they discover that? Well, sneezed. It was pretty much the Sherlock Holmes process of elimination. Like they, they realized that there is just no plausible way that bacteria could have survived all of the things that I listed before. Well, it's not just that, Jay. It's that they reviewed the methods that were being used in the lab at the time, as as documented in, in, in the documents they were looking at, and they realized that the standard procedure that they were following was not sufficient to prevent contamination. So while NASA at the time said there was no possibility of contamination, we could look back now, whatever, you know, 40 years later, and say, oh, yeah, those methods were not adequate. That's not what we do today. I mean, they're they're not the the strict uh, sterile methods that would be used in in a similar lab today and that they absolutely could cause contamination. So that's how they came to that conclusion. One interesting thing that I read was that, for example, one of the guys studying the camera wasn't wearing a long a long sleeve scrub. He was wearing a short sleeve scrub. And then they were looking at the height of the table and, and different things that come into play. So, for example, like when the scientist approaches the table, the air would, would kind of flip 
bacteria right out of the guy's shirt. Hmm. Just, yeah. 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 And they were saying that we would have to have a, a tenfold in cleanliness today. We need to be that much more clean than they were back then in order to handle the types of experiments that we're doing today cleanly, right. especially with, with incredibly expensive missions that we're planning, like retrieving stuff from Mars and all that stuff. We can't have minor, ridiculous things like this happen anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know. We we have the benefit of having forty years worth of improved technology over what was available in nineteen seventy. Yeah, but it's to, kind of uh, cool just in terms of what we know. Um, wait a second, guys. Now th- we're talking about a camera. This is a camera that came back from the moon, and they want to develop the pictures, right? No, no. There's no, Bob. The 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 camera was sending pictures back to Earth. Okay. It was radioing pictures back to Earth. Okay, so why so why did they 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 took it because what they wanted the equipment. Why did they want it then? If, they, if the job they was went done. to, uh, they went to the surveyor and stripped it. All right, they took everything that was that had any kind of value, and then they were looking for moon okay. microbes. All right, just checking. That's that's why they were going through the procedure that yeah, they that, were doing. That, that makes sense. Of course, these weren't moon microbes; these were Earth microbes. And yeah, these were Earth microbes that were yeah. in the lab right then and there. Right, probably got contaminated within twenty four hours of when they brought yeah, it in. When they you say know? moon microbes, do they mean that potentially? came from the moon or that they're just microbes that yeah well that's stupid well we know that's stupid now. ah here we go <laughs> at the time yeah. they were we know they weren't sure <laughs> they they weren't absolutely sure that the moon was sterile so they wanted to prove it as you say theory and experiment right we kind of theoretically knew the moon was probably sterile but this is the first time we were there it was their first opportunity to experimentally look to see if there was anything that could possibly be surviving on the moon. And that's why it was a big deal when they found a bacteria there. But they figured the bacteria was contamination, not, you know, native moon microbes. Right. Well, as it, was just, it was just, was it a contamination before the okay. camera That's what went? I wanted to clarify. Or, or after. Did yeah. it sur- right. Did it survive the trip or did it happen upon open, yeah, exactly. in- inspecting the camera on return? Wouldn't they also have been able to... Or maybe they wouldn't have been able to, but let's say this were to happen today. Could we examine them and compare them to Streptococcus that they might f- find around the lab and see? Yes. You know, because you can assume that you know the one that had spent a few years in the moon would have evolved in some way, right? Yeah, yes, well, that, uh, you, you would, in fact... You know, culture everybody and everything, and 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 establish your your contaminants. Yeah. And, but and in that, that temperature, though, there's yeah. no there's no metabolism in that temperature for Earth bacteria, right? Well, but they would at least know if it came from that lab at that time versus three years prior, some other lab someplace else. Didn't uh, scientists recently discover that water bears are a type of microbe that can survive in? Yeah, uh, the vacuum Tar- space. Tardigrads, so they're, they're fascinating. I love them. Yeah. Yeah. They're I will <laughs> persist in calling them, them water Cougars. bears because it's adorable. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no. They're also known as moss piglets. Really? They have the well, cutest you know names. Else, you know what else is adorable? Is sea monkeys. The, the Statlerville monster. Oh, nice segue. Nice oh, segue. Well, it's King adorable of segues, Steve. Evan, take it away. We were talking about uh, Scooby, you know, uh, Scooby Doo adventures and what you, you know, what would be an appropriate title for them. I think this one definitely qualifies. The Statlerville Monster Strikes Again. Definitely Scooby. Yeah, right? it fits. That's oh, yeah. very Scooby-ish. Is that the actual <laughs> title of the news article? Yes. <laughs> Statlerville's in South Africa, a uh, little South tiny Africa? sleepy town, and apparently there has been a plague, according to this article. Of this monster, a monster is plaguing the town, and it struck 
according to this article, again over the Easter weekend, uh, back in April, and it had apparently been seen even before that as well. So multiple sightings of a shape-shifting creature. Wait, if it's a shape-shifting creature, how do they know it's the same creature? Exactly. Well, I'll tell you why. Because it They're starts like, look, off like now a it's really... A pig. <laughs> it starts off like a really now bad a joke. Yeah, the head of a pig in the body of a pig. <laughs> Esquilax, the head of a rabbit. The body of a rabbit. Uh, two men were walking near a tavern. You've heard this one before. Eh? When they saw another man wearing a black jacket, one of the men went up to the stranger and asked him, What is your problem? The stranger did not respond. When the man went closer to get a look, the man who he talked to had no head. Whoa. The man, turned, the, man, the, man the headless man, turned into a dog that was reported very, to be very angry and as big as a cow. So were they walking into a bar or out of a bar? Yeah, good question, Steve. Near, good question. near a tavern. So let's, talk it, uh, let, let's say walking into Let's I say walking out of. <laughs> <laughs> that makes well, a bit more sense. Or maybe let's oh. say staggering out of. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Two men were stumbling near a tavern. Yes. So they ran Tipsy away. They stagger. were scared. <laughs> this this shape-shifting, headless man that turned into a dog as big as a cow monster scared these two people away. Later, by the and mental they, facility. <laughs> and then this, this uh, dog dog creature assaulted or turned onto another group of people in the street who's they and according to their reports they say it turned into a big monkey was this and then it outside was a meth lab or <laughs> just, <laughs> no. just trying to judge this is just one of the most ridiculous things you've ever been reported i yeah. can't even believe they reported this well um no it just reminds me of when i was reading this article you guys remember uh monsters incorporated yeah. When they, were, oh, sure. when they saw the when the the, uh, the little kid was sighted in the restaurant, and they were interviewing all the eyewitnesses, and they all have a completely different story about that was what fantastic. they saw. <laughs> it had laser beams shooting out its eyes. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's what this is. Well, Everyone's just making up right. you know, whatever they, their own imagination, but then they're just attaching it to the, this one monster story. That's like the pan- the circus panda <laughs> that escaped, yeah. and everyone saw it in town, but it was dead by the train tracks about 30 feet from the circus. That was the uh, Rotterdam Zoo Red Panda episode. We've talked about the hysteria of crowds, mass hallucinations, mass delusions, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. This definitely fits in. Yeah, absolutely. The article said that someone got a photo of it, but I wasn't able to find the photo. Were you? I went, and this article's been out a couple of weeks now, Rebecca, and I went looking for that photo. I spent an hour looking for any kind of photo about this monster. Nothing. Yeah, if it's not online, it doesn't exist. Well, one story exactly. reported this. Apparently, a photo has been taken, which is yet to be published. However, it said the photo was originally taken of the monster in human form. However, when the photo, however, when the photo was developed, it showed an unknown creature. Man, someone should show that photo and just have it be a picture of Osama bin Laden. <laughs> no, a couple things here. Or First maybe of all, it's just a picture said, of a dog, and it's like, no, it was a man before. It was a man when I took the picture. This is the monster. Pigman from Seinfeld. Um, that that thing. They, the photo was developed. So I guess what they they drove the uh, the one ten film to the photo mat out there in in Statlerville and <laughs> had it developed. They said, I guess no one there has heard of a digital camera yet. I mean, this place is kind of remote. It's, it's just fun every now and then to be reminded of this mass delusion phenomenon when it happens. You know, 
it's it's good to hear of one that hasn't ended in people butchering each other or something. Yeah, that's always, that's always a bonus. <laughs> well, not like, yet. Like, yeah, and then they targeted a local witch and killed her. And, yes. you know, the, and then it turned into my neighbor, so I had to kill him. Right. Who happened to be the guy who was going to the bar with in the beginning. Right. right. Who owed me $20. <laughs> yeah. Well, Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Okay, so let's remind everyone what exactly last week's Who's That Noisy? Or what it sounded like. Let's go. I saw Bigfoot. <laughs> Such a great line. <laughs> a classic. It is a great line. It's More a wonderful delivery. line. From the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I imagine all of us here have seen. Many times. That was the uh, farmer character who was one of the uh, witnesses of the, uh, of the encounters. And during one of the meetings, uh, they were talking about close encounters and the army is saying ah you're all hallucinating you know it's nothing it's nothing this guy get, stands up and says i saw a bigfoot once and brought the meeting to a screeching halt <laughs> but i think if you ask a lot of people if you had to choose one movie in which you can sum up in your own mind what you think the whole alien phenomenon is about a lot of people would point to close encounters as being their kind of image yeah. their projection of of what they feel about uh, how a alien uh, encounter would take i'd go place. with Definitely. independence day <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be the other one. I think that that might be second. Yeah. I, I, How about the thing? Actually, I think District Nine is the closest. Yeah, that we've yeah. ever come to having a true. I think life. that's the coolest un- un- one. Unfortunately, definitely. Evan, who got the right answer? The correct answer. Well, there were several people who got the correct answer, but Carl from Rochester, New York, was the first one to guess correctly. That that was the actor Roberts Blossom. That's the actor's name as the hillbilly farmer in Close Encounters of the Third Hillbilly Farmer. Now, name. that was on. the name I, of the, I looked the character. <laughs> no, that's the name of the actor who played the. No, character. no, they did. But they, the hillbilly farmer was the name of the character. Hillbilly, yeah, hillbilly farmer is the name of, is the, name <laughs> awesome. of the character. Evan, what do you got for this week? Here is this week's. Was that noisy? Well, thank you, Evan. That was an interesting one. You're welcome. Good luck, everyone. Okay, we got one email this week. This one comes from Hai Ting in New York, New York. And Hai Ting writes, During your segment on the Easter Island civilization, Rebecca mentioned an island that uses giant stone things as currency. What she was remembering is the island of Yap, a Pacific island that uses giant limestone disks as money. Many of the stone disks are so big up to four or five metric tons, that no one person could move them on their own. So they trade them as currency without moving them, just sort of pointing to the stone in your neighbor's yard and saying, yep, that one's mine. What's even crazier is that the stones come from another island, Palau, which is several hundred miles away and had to be brought over on rafts and canoes. All this information is from a show that NPR's Planet Money did on the subject. It was great to meet you all at Nexus. Thanks ever for the great show. Hi, Ting. Thank so you, Haiting, for being the first Hi-ting. of many to validate the fact that I am not insane for that reason, <laughs> for that specific reason. Well, coming from her, that's I, I, I believe that. Yeah, Haiting's extremely talented. It was a pleasure meeting her at Nexus. Yeah, actually, she's awesome, and her, her yeah, presentation did, was great. She did an awesome job. That was really cool. It came out of nowhere, right? I never, never even thought stuff like that existed. Yeah, she she's an opera singer. She's a really great singer. A skeptical opera. Yeah. 
Um, but but anyway, back to the yeah, point, fill us in which on is this, that the I gap. yeah I was right, not about it being the Easter Island group, but yeah, it's it's yeah, and and I learned about it from the same place that Hai Ting and many of our listeners did from Planet Money, which was also segmented on This American Life uh, a short yeah. while ago. The I island think. of Yap, isn't that where the who? Oh my live? god, I was thinking the same thing. The who? <laughs> really? Like a, out there on the fields? <laughs> It does. Oh, yes. The island of Yap. It sounds like a Doctor. Oh, I thought you meant the thing where everyone takes a nap or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> they wake up with a slap. Well, it's not quite as um, pleasant as that Susian. would make it. Yeah, it's not, it's not as Susian as you might hope. Um, it is sort of in the in their in the way they deal with their currency, as Hai Tang mentioned, uh, and which I alluded to last week. Uh, yeah, they they have. Several different types of money and they range in size. So they have some, uh, pieces of money that are just a couple of inches in diameter. Um, and then they have others that can get up to 12 feet in diameter, four meters. Apparently most of them are not that big. That's kind of rare. And they're valued based upon their size and also how difficult it was to procure them. So as Hai Ting mentioned, uh, some of them came from as far away as Palau, even further actually New Guinea. Uh, some of them came from New Guinea because the, the people were notable for their, um, their sailing abilities. They used wind powered canoes to, uh, take them far and wide where they would hunt down, uh, these discs of calcite. Which they, uh, they valued very highly because it was kind of like, uh, it's, it's kind of it's shiny. shiny. Yeah, yeah, it's shiny. <laughs> we, like all humans, they like shiny things. Um, yeah. so. We can make a 20 foot coin out of that. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> the Yappies would trek through jungle, they would sail really far away and even fight local natives in order to get these discs of calcite bring them back and then use them as currency so and i read a really interesting story about a an irishman named david o'keefe who in 1874 got the good idea to bring shiploads of calcite to the island and trade for them shipload of calcite Um, so yeah it's like here's uh here's a bunch of money for you and so they took the calcite but they didn't they ruined their economy <laughs> yeah. uh no they 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 didn't value it very highly because it was so easy for them to get someone just brought it to them on a ship so even though some of the pieces were very large they were very low in value they are no longer producing any more discs and these are um you know it's not just any calcite they carve them uh into like a, a donut shape so they're not they're not doing that anymore though so their calcite currency is stable i suppose but now they're also <laughs> using fixed, yeah. uh yeah it's fixed they're also using american dollars so they use american dollars for their day-to-day currency go back to the yaps but they uh they use their their large discs still for ceremonial things and larger payments um and and as Haiting mentioned, oftentimes with the very large discs, discs they don't even move them when they change hands. It's just everybody in the area just sort of knows, uh, you know, who owns which disc. All right, let's go on with our interview. 
Uh, we are joined now by John Ronson. John, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. Hey, Stephen, and hi, Rebecca. It's good to be back. Hello. So, John is a, a journalist and an author. Uh, we interviewed him previously about his book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, and, and other books that he's written. And we're having him back on the show to discuss his latest book called The Psychopath Test, which has been out in the UK, but I believe is just coming out in the United States, correct? Uh, oh, incorrect. It's, it's, it's coming out in the United States before it comes out in, in the United Kingdom. Oh, uh, so okay. it's, it's not coming out in Britain until early June, and it's out in, in the US kind of now, like this week, in a couple of days' time. Okay, great. Yeah, usually for UK authors, we find that the, it, the books are released in the UK first, but the, okay. Yeah, so I, I, don't why that, that. I don't know why that happened. I think there were some, some backstage shenanigans that, that were kind of beyond my sphere of understanding. So this was a really fascinating book. I have to say thanks for sending me the review copy, uh, which I devoured. The subtitle here is A a Journey Through the Madness Industry. And you do a good job of documenting your own personal journey through trying to understand psychiatry as a whole, but specifically the whole notion of the diagnosis of a psychopath. So, so why don't you just tell us about that? How did you get started on taking this journey? Yeah, I, 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 I guess it was the realization, you know, 10 years ago, I, I, I wrote in my book, Them, one of the chapters was about David Icke, and he believes that the world is being ruled by giant blood-drinking, child-sacrificing, pedophile lizards who've adopted human form, and everybody, you know, thinks he's nuts. Um, With good reason. I, with very good reason, and then, but then a couple of years ago, I started realizing that there was a consensus of psychologists who kind of believed much the same thing, but instead of blood drinking, child sacrificing, paedophile lizards ruling the world, it was another kind of subhuman species, um, psychopaths, um, and you know, if you got them talking, they would say, you know, these people are are not human. They, they don't have the things that people need to be human. I mean, some of the really hardline people would say that. And, and, I, and that struck me as, as extraordinary because it was, you know, these people aren't nuts. These people are brilliant and eminent. And, and I thought it was just extraordinary that there was a possibility that this particular brain anomaly or brain dysfunction was the dysfunction that ruled our world. So I thought, well, I wonder if I can do what nobody before me had done, which was learn how to become a psychopath spotter and then journey into the corridors of power to see if I can actually prove whether this theory is any truer than David Icke's theory. And, you know, in a lot of your your past books, you've focused on humanizing the the fringe element the people who some of us think of as the the thems in the world so do you think that in this book you were able to do the same with psychopaths yeah you know what i it, well i thought it was it was a it was an odd cold thing to believe that there were people among us who just didn't really deserve you know, because they didn't have any of this stuff themselves. It, because they said there was no empathy, there was no remorse, there was no human kindness, then they didn't deserve it either. Um, you know, that struck me as like a, you know, a huge thing to think about people. Right. Um, but, 
you know, as the journey went on, I, I some of the psychopaths I, I, I hung out with, I became quite good friends with. Uh, others kind of left me sort of slack-jawed with, with horror. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a spectrum. There, there, was a, there was a time when psychologists and psychiatrists uh, really felt that, that psychopaths could be cured that they that all you had to do is is bring the madness to the surface this madness that's kind of buried beneath a veneer of of normalcy uh and then they could be reborn as empathetic human beings and and i i, I learned about these fantastic kind of minister goats like experiments that were taking place inside uh uh, the Oak Ridge Mental Health Facility in Pentanguishene in, in the 1960s and 70s. So, did, did you know about these things, Stephen? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you, this is the kind of things that you learn about in a typical like psychiatry course in medical school. Yeah. Right, right. Because this, this, there was a guy called Elliot Barker who, who had been to all these kind of naked hot tub encounter sessions in Northern California where, you know, movie stars would, would sort of, you know, scream at each other naked for 48 hours and, yeah. uh, uh, and then, uh, you know, he went to kind of R.D. Lang's various places in London and he brought all these things back to his um, ward of psychopaths and he basically got a bunch of psychopaths and stuck them in a room and told them to take their clothes off and just kind of, you know, journey to the furthest corners of their, of their, you know, rage and, and, and so on. And, and he strapped them all together and made them take loads of LSD and, um, and they all kind of, after years of this, declared that they were now reborn as as empathetic humans and then they they're all let out well on horrific killing sprees and in fact you know it made them worse um so that's when robert Hare came along with us and you know under normal circumstances 60 percent of people who score high on the psychopath checklist go on to re-offend if if they're let out Uh, but the ones who've been through the naked lsd sessions at oakridge uh, 80 percent of them went on to (laughs) re-offend Not, That's um, good work, boys. I, not, I, I first thought that, that, you know, all the nakedness and the LSD and, the, and, you know, all of that stuff had kind of, you know, turned them crazier. But actually, that's not the case. What had happened was that they'd learnt inside this capsule, and they admitted this themselves, uh, it, it taught them how to fake empathy better. So yeah. they just became, like, better bad people. More efficient psychopaths. Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, all of this stuff is stunning to me because I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a humanist and I, I'm a liberal and I, you know, all my life have believed that everybody is good. So when I started hearing this stuff, I was thinking, you know, my God, this is, you know, shaking to the core. I, yeah, <laughs> what I believe about people. Um, okay. So Robert has said a few things. Uh, um, at one point, he was doing all these experiments at the same time that Elliot Barker was doing his LSD stuff in Pentanguishene. Uh, Hare was in Vancouver doing his own things, and he was strapping both psychopathic and non-psychopathic prisoners up to EEG machines and so on. And, and he'd say to them, okay, I'm going to count from 10 to 1, and when I get to 1, I'm going to give you extremely painful electric shocks. And they'd all go, sorry? And <laughs> Bob would go, 10. And, um, <laughs> and it, it got to 1, and... Uh, you know the the um, the non psychopathic prisoners, the ones whose crimes had been you know crimes of passion and so on. You know, obviously their their heartbeats were rising and the sweat was rising and uh, and so on. And uh, the the psychopathic ones, you know, barely broke a sweat. And and even when he repeated the test and they knew how painful the electric shock was going to be, still the psychopathic ones 
didn't break a sweat. Um, and he sent the readings to a science magazine and they sent it back. They said they wouldn't publish them because these readings can't have come from humans. And Bob told me the story and kind of smiled. Um, Robert Hare was criticized. I, 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 I want to, you know, I want to caveat this by saying I, I have, I do have really great respect for Hare, actually. I, I think his, his checklist is correct. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's as scientific as things can get in this world. And, and so I've got great respect for him. Um, however, um, some critics of his say that they don't like how he speaks of psychopaths almost as if they're a different species. So I said that to her on my last meeting with him, and he said all the research indicates that they're not a different species. There's no evidence that they form a different species. However, then he said, my gut feeling, though, deep down, is that maybe they are different, but we haven't established that yet. So kind of put on the record, that's, that's as far as he'll go about, about that. Yeah, I think before we go on, I mean, I've already have 10 questions to ask you just based on what we've talked about already. But before we go on, so we don't leave the audience behind, give us a good, concise definition of what psychiatrists, psychologists mean by a psychopath. Okay, well, in a nutshell, they're they're, they're talking about people who lack empathy. And and in, you know, the part of the brain, and obviously you're going to be fantastic at talking about this, but, you know, the the part of the brain that, that shoots signals of fear and distress um, back and forward, you know, from, from the amygdala to the central nervous system, uh, doesn't function the way that it should in these people who score high on the, on the checklist. And so in the absence of, of empathy, what breeds, uh, poor behavioral controls, uh, a kind of adept, manip- you know, manipulativeness, uh, cunning, deceitfulness, grandiosity, superficial charm it's as if if you don't have empathy and guilt and remorse then your other senses work really hard to compensate and and those senses are all those other things those malevolent things you know that in a nutshell is what is what they say a psychopath is yeah so this is kind of the the dark side of the whole concept of neurodiversity. Maybe, I don't know if you've ever heard that term applied to, for example, people with autism or with ADHD or whatnot, with things that are recognized as neurological, quote-unquote, disorders. But some people say, yeah, this is all just part of the fabric of human di- neurological diversity. All of our brains are not the same. Some people are musical. Other people are mathematical. Some people are psychopaths. Some people have, you know, short attention spans. And it's just, all, you know, it's part, all part of the wonderful fabric of being human, which I think there there's something to that view. However, what it what it can miss is that, yeah, but, you know, when you get too far afield in certain ways – then you start to get to things that are demonstrably disorders. And and having a complete or a near-complete lack of empathy to the point that there's no breaks on the other things that tend to motivate people creates somebody who cannot live in society. And yeah. that's, you know, I, yeah. that's, that's a serious problem. And when I went on the on the hair course, I, you know, at first I'd spent quite a lot of time with Scientologists because it's something I always like to do when I'm writing these stories is go and see people who have, you know, extreme viewpoints on, on the subjects. And uh, by the time I started going on the hair course, uh, I, I was thinking, you know, it's it's just, it's amateur sleuth territory to think that you can spot a psychopath 
by the nuances of their language, uh, you know, their sentence construction and so on, because that's in essence what, what the checklist is all about, uh, or certainly parts of the checklist are about that, you know, the way they say things. And But sure enough, after after going on this course and then, you know, subsequently spending a long time meeting high-scoring psychopaths, you know, I was stunned and, and re- you know, remain stunned by how, you know, when people's brains go wrong, they go wrong in uncannily similar ways. So, for instance, you know, um, sufferers of OCD all over the world have the same irrational anxieties and it's the same with psychopathy. They use very similar sentence constructions and so on. And, you know, that that blew me away, the fact that brain dysfunctions manifest themselves in such nuanced ways. Yeah, there are lots of examples of that, even genetic disorders where people who have the same mutation have a suite of personality features that are identical. Uh, it, it really brings home that, you know, while all of our brains are different, they're all unique, right? All snowflakes, We're as all we say. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> um, the, but they're all variations on a common theme, on the human brain theme. And when major structures in that that construct fail or are different in some way, that can have a dominant effect on somebody's personality, thought, moods, and behavior, and therefore can manifest in shockingly similar ways. Although it's always embedded in the sea of a lot of of differences, of details that are very different. Um, And that's, I think, where the tricky part comes in. And again, I think your personal journey sort of mirrored that. First, you were overwhelmed by the similarities and how Mm. powerful the checklist was. Then you realized, yeah, but God, there's different ways of interpreting each one of these pieces, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, And also, I I was very seduced by by the power of the checklist. Uh, And I think this is, I think this is very common with a lot of people who who go on the hair course. And, you know, hair will say this himself that, um, you know, I mean, I'm just a journalist who's writing a a book. So it's not a, it's not a huge problem with me because I'm, I'm sort of writing a, you know, funny, self-reflective book but a, a lot of other people who go kind of completely insane with power after doing the hair course of people who, yeah. who determine whether you know a, a, a pedophile for instance who's done his time should be locked up for the rest of his life uh, and that's happening you know all over america in these um you know in these places like the koalinga uh yeah prison for pedophiles where they just are never let out and and you know that's from a three-day care course um so so yeah at first after doing the course i just i went crazy with power and started spotting psychopaths everywhere you know on twitter uh people who'd crossed me you know people who'd written bad reviews (laughs) about television documentaries um and what i found really interesting actually was then when i would meet somebody who scored high i i I think there's a key chapter in my book where hair says to me you know Look, the big story here is corporate psychopathy, you know, because a serial killer will, will destroy the lives of a, you know, of a certain number of people, but a very powerful corporate psychopath will destroy society. And he said, this is a huge story. And, and, and in fact, he says to me, he says to me a few times, including very recently, you know, that he, he can't really understand why corporate psychopathy isn't like a massive field of study. Um, and I wonder actually whether there's a bit of glibness going on. You know, when you say psychopaths rule the world, people glibly say, well, of course, but they don't really think about it. They don't think about what mm-hmm. that means. Um, so anyway, so, so after Hare told me this, I thought, well, I should really try and 
you know, meet somebody who's been accused of being a high-scoring corporate psychopath. Um, and so I went to Florida to meet this enormously wealthy uh, CEO called Al Dunlap, who, uh, and asked him, I sort of went through the psychopath checklist with him and asked him which of these things, you know, he felt applied to him. And he basically redefined, you know, pretty much every item on the psychopath checklist as a leadership positive. Hmm. Um, so, for instance, you know, manipulation was was leading. Um, a grandiose sense of self-worth. Well, of course. I mean, actually, when I asked him whether they had grandiose sense of self-worth, he was standing underneath a giant oil painting of himself um, <laughs> and, his, and his German shepherd dogs. And his house was filled with um, sculptures of predatory animals. But... Uh, but what I noticed after after he kind of you know fessed up to a, to a great number of these uh, items on the checklist was when there were some items that actually didn't bear any resemblance to his life whatsoever. I just felt really kind of disappointed, and and I, and I sort of thought, well, I won't put those in the book. Uh, and I realized I was like in a sort of frenzy of confirmation bias then, and yeah. and I and I think that's the moment when I realized that, gosh, there's another side to the story. Let's get back to the notion of uh, confirmation bias because I definitely was struck by that in the book and you, sort of your personal journey through it as well as the the pitfall of simplistically applying the checklist. The big problem with diagnosing psychopaths is that one of the items on the checklist is that they're manipulative and that gives you the opportunity to explain away anything which doesn't fit as the psychopath being manipulative. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, you know, one, one of the people I, I, um, got closest to was this, um, man in, incarcerated at Broadmoor Mental Hospital in, in England, uh, who had faked mental illness, um, to get out of a prison sentence. Uh, and, and he kind of faked it too well. He started kind of channeling, you know, Dennis Hopper and Blue Velvet to the prison psychiatrist. And so they sent him to Broadmoor, uh, and realized once he got to Broadmoor that yes, he had faked mental illness, but you know, he was a psychopath. Um, and so I said to him at one point, um, well, actually, no, I went with a Scientologist called Brian Daniels to see him at one point, and Brian wanted to kind of prove to me how, um, you know, how nuts and amateur sleuthy psychiatrists were. And so he said to Tony, the guy at Broadmoor, he said, um, do you feel remorse? And Tony immediately said, um, you know, what? Well, yeah, my, my remorse is that I've not only hurt uh, my victim, but also I've hurt myself and my family, and that's my remorse, and I feel it every day. Thinking, well, did that sound? You know, I immediately started reading between the lines of what he was saying. You know, should a statement of remorse have been in the other order? Would that have made it sound more genuinely remorseful? And he said, of course, you know, whenever I express remorse to psychiatrists, they immediately say, yeah, well, that's exactly the manipulative uh, thing that a, that a psychopath will do. He'll pretend to be remorseful when he's not. Right. So so you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's like a conspiracy theory. It contains its own uh, protection from any disconfirmation. Yeah, yeah, or, absolutely. I, I, was st- I have to say, I was stunned by, by how... Um, I fell victim to confirmation bias because, you know, I see myself as a very rational person and, you know, you hear stories about the kind of Milgram experiment and I, and I just think, well, I'd never press the button. Um, yeah, you know, three days on a Robert Hare course in a marquee in West Wales and I was diagnosing everyone as a psychopath. And in fact, I think um, a lot of people reading my book, uh, and I think this is one of the strengths of the book, uh, will 
start to do it themselves as they're going on the same journey that I go on. They'll start, they'll start seeing, you know, and in fact, loads of people email me to say, you know, I read the psychopath test. You know, I'm, I'm almost certain that somebody in my office is a psychopath. You know, I'm pretty sure that my mother's a psychopath. Um, so they're, you know, they're all kind of going on the same journey into confirmation bias that I went on. Uh, and I think in the second half of the book, they begin to learn the error of their ways. And so I think it's a, I think it's a really strong book about, confirmation bias for that reason because i think you actually get the reader to experience it themselves Mm -hmm. well john thank you so much for joining us it's been a fascinating discussion tell everybody again how they can get a hold of your book okay well it's called the psychopath test and it's it's, i think it's like out now you can get it in the in all the regular ways that you buy or download books yeah and yeah (laughs) <laughs> okay good well, well put okay well i highly recommend it it was it was a wild ride thank you and it's great talking to to you guys again great it's weird being on the show when i listen to it every week it's almost as if i'm being sucked into my own dreams <laughs> right <laughs> okay right. kind of a surreal experience yeah thanks for staying up late for us john hey my pleasure it's time for science or fiction Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a special science fiction this week. Mm. These are four items that I took out of the current book that I'm reading. What? Four Steve, items. Steve, we don't we're not reading whatever book you're reading. That's not fair. I'm, I'll tell you, even tell you what the book is. Dungeon Master's Guide. Dungeon yeah, it's Master's probably something Guide. dorky. <laughs> I'm reading The Disappearing Spoon by Sam Keen. I know how it ends. <laughs> the dish runs away with it. Thank you. This is a book about the periodic table of elements. Oh. Cool, man. man. It is cool. It's really it it's is a, awesome. full of uh, all these science stories that I'd never heard before. It's cool. How up to date? Like where the though. names come from, Steve, it's, it's and who the scientists were and everything? It's everything. It's good. It's everything. Cool. See, that how is cool, is cool is but I it's think it's cool up-to-date. because I don't know anything about the periodic table. Well, I was well, I was looking through the science section of Kindle and trying to find something different, you know, so that I is a little bit outside of the kind of books I typically read and say, like, oh, cool, a book all about the elements and the periodic table. I mean, I know, I know about it, but it's, it was you know, a little bit different than the typical science books that I read, and it's been a lot of fun. It's a great, I re- highly recommend it. Okay, so there are four items. There are four items. Uh, these are all just science facts that I took out of this book. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Except one of them. Item number one, except for one of them, is not quite right. Here we go. Item number one. The first solid-state amplifier, or transistor, was made of germanium, which dominated the transistor industry from 1947 into the 1960s until it was ultimately replaced by the silicon transistor. Item number two. Marie and Pierre Curie had a daughter, Irene Joliet Curie, who also won a Nobel Prize jointly with her husband for work with radiation and, like her mother, died prematurely of radiation-induced leukemia. Item number three, mercury is the only element that is a liquid at room temperature. Item number four, for over 60 years in the 1800s, aluminum was considered a precious metal worth more than gold, despite being the most common metal in the Earth's crust. 
Evan, go first. The first item, the first solid-state amplifier was made of germanium. You would think germanium would have dominated from 1939 to 1944, <laughs> <laughs> but apparently they were a little late to the quote-unquote party. Ultimately replaced by the silicon transistor. That uh, certainly being ultimately replaced by the silicon transistor sounds exactly correct, but what was prior to it, germanium? Uh, quite possibly. A lot of scientists coming out of uh, Germany and not necessarily uh, has anything to do with this per se, but I'm tending to think that it's true. The Curies, they had a daughter. I seem to recall that somewhere in the folds of my gray matter, although I didn't know she, she supposedly won a Nobel Prize jointly with her husband. The third one was mercury being the only element that is a liquid at room temperature. There are not many elements, I don't think, that are liquid at room temperature. Was mercury the only one? Not having the chart at my fingertips, uh, and I don't know that it would even reveal that information. Um, so I doubt that that would even be of any use to me. The last one was uh, for over 60 years in the 1800s, aluminum was considered a precious metal worth more than gold. Yeah, I know that gold has not always been... Uh, there have always been things worth more uh, than gold um, and that it's kind of fluctuated up and down compared to other metals over the course of knowing about these things. So I'm not surprised at that one. Uh, therefore, I think the I think there's another element at that's liquid at room temperature. I think that one's the fiction. Okay, Bob. Wow, this is really good, Steve. Bastard. First solid-state amplifier is made of germanium. Damn, you know, this is one of those things that I used to know, but now I forgot, and it pisses me off. If only there um, were a book to teach you or remind you of these <laughs> things. I can't think of one. If I just, you know, could remember half of what I've forgotten, it'd be so cool. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you solid, need a RAM upgrade. 40, solid-state amplifier, 47 to the 60s? That just seems too, too early. 47... I've got a problem with that one. And the the, the uh, Marie and Pierre Curie, I mean, you would think I would have heard at some point that that their daughter kind of just completely did the same thing they did. Even winning, winning, did you have here, a Nobel Prize? And, I mean, how could I not even ever hear that? Um, and then, let's see, Mercury, yeah, I mean, shit, I don't know. I don't know if that's the only one. I should know, but I don't know. So, boy, I'm going to have to flip a damn coin for this one. Um, and then aluminum. I mean, that, that kind of makes sense to me in the 1800s. I mean, perhaps it was um, – yeah, the fact that it's the most – you know, if it is the most common metal, um, it doesn't make any difference because they didn't necessarily know it back then. And I don't know. I can kind of justify that in a warped way in my head. So, um, whew, wow. All right. I'm going to – for some reason, the uh, the transistor one's irking me, so I'm going to say that one's fiction. Damn it. Okay. Jay? I'm going to just say that the mercury one is the fake. All right, Rebecca? Yeah, I, I don't know much about transistors. That or makes biology. sense to me. Um, much about I, I, I do know a bit about the Curies, and uh, yeah, I can, I can totally believe that Irene uh, won the Nobel Prize with her husband and died of... It's, I'm I'm not sure that it's leukemia exactly, but I don't think you would change. If you just changed that part, I think we would all riot. Lame. And you, 
There's actually yeah, lymphoma. Right. So, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and give you the benefit of the doubt and assume that that one is true. And uh, which brings us to the last two. The, the I have the, aluminum as a precious metal. I love that because I I really I don't know what I have no idea what aluminum looks like in its raw form. No idea. When when you say aluminum was considered a precious metal, I'm picturing people clutching balls of aluminum foil and you know <laughs> trying to craft them into crowns. Hats. Okay, so but but the idea that mercury is the only element that's a liquid at room temperature. I have a periodic table shower curtain and I'm trying to picture it and it's got little circles, I believe, wherever an element is a liquid at room temperature, and I'm fairly certain that there is more than one element with a circle on it. So I'm saying that that one is, in fact, the fake. Okay. All right, so we'll, we'll start with uh, the number two then. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to interpret that. <laughs> to, 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 to draw Marie out the and torture. Pierre Curie had a – I always start with the ones that you all agree on. Marie and Pierre Curie had a daughter, Irene Juliet Curie. By the way, it's I-R-E-N-E, but there's an accent over the first E. So how would you pronounce that? Irene. Irene? Maybe. Irene? 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 Irene. Who also won a Nobel Prize jointly with her husband for work in radiation and, like her mother, died prematurely of radiation-induced leukemia. You guys all agree with this one? And this one is science. That one is true. Wow. That's incredible. It had so many similarities in her career. Uh, She and her husband won the Nobel Prize for essentially first discovering man-made radiation mm-hmm. as both natural awesome sources family. of radiation. Yeah. And hey, taste this. Mm, was radiation. exposed to it over years <laughs> and developed radiation-induced leukemia and died at 58. Oh, man. I wonder, That's when cool. was it realized, though, that her job did it? Uh, I think by the time she was dying of it, it was, it was clear. Do you know, what, you know what Marie Curie's maiden name was? I almost Curie? went with this one. Maria uh, Sklodowska. She what? was Polish. Oh, Maria Sklodowska. I would have never gotten that. Yeah. Let's go to number four. Uh, for over 60 years in the 1800s, aluminum, aluminium for our non-Americans, uh, was considered a precious metal worth more than gold despite being the most common metal in the Earth's crust. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Cool. Oh, boy. Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. like 1820 to 1880, basically. Uh, aluminum was you know, recently discovered metal. Uh, was The process for purifying it was very laborious, so there was only small amounts of it. It couldn't really be industrialized. What, and do, what does it look like in its form? It's shiny. Form. It's really very light, know. shiny. It's, it's, it's actually like what you think of as burnished aluminum. aluminum. It's, it's very light. Oh, yeah, I guess light there gray, are shiny. knobs and stuff I've seen. Yeah. It comes in cans I'm now. Uh, and there's all kinds of examples of this. Uh, the Washington <laughs> Monument is capped by a aluminum pyramid. Really? At the, the capstone, huh? At the yeah, time, I knew that. At the time, it was the largest single block of aluminum ever made, and that was a way for the United States to show off its money and prowess. So they capped it with aluminum rather than gold. That was more precious. Mm-hmm. So aluminum cost more, huh. hundreds of dollars an ounce. Uh, than gold Whoa. at the time. 
aluminum is the most common metal in the Earth's crust. It's the third most common element in the Earth's crust. You know what one Damn, and two I didn't are? Know that. What's that? Uh, oh, um, one and two? Yeah. Iron? One is oxygen. Oh. Two. Wow. The other's got to oh. be hydrogen. No. Two is silicon. Really? Three yeah. is aluminum. But alu- the, the aluminum almost never exists in its raw form. It always, oh, in raw form. Okay. Sorry. It always exists hmm. as. Um, as it bound to something else because it's very reactive. Oh. Usually oxygen. So aluminum oxide is the most common right. form in Ooh. the crust. So it's there. There's tons of it everywhere, pretty much in the Earth's crust. But it but it took a while for them to figure out how to how to uh, conveniently and cheaply extract the aluminum from the oxygen. When somebody finally figured that out, the price of aluminum plummeted to tw- over about 20 years later. It was like 25 cents a pound. You know, Jeez. from being uh, wow, hundreds of dollars an ounce. That's awesome. Yeah. Imagine plummeted. living through that. So here we go. Okay. <laughs> Bob, everyone. you don't sound hopeful. Let's go to number one. <laughs> the first solid-state amplifier transistor was made of germanium, which dominated yeah, the transistor industry from 1947 into the 1960s until it was ultimately replaced by the silicon transistor. Bob is alone in thinking that this one is fiction. Everyone else thinks that this one is science, and this one uh, is uh, science. Uh, Sorry, uh, Bob. Hooray. Crap. Sorry, Bob. It's pretty good. Sorry, oh, well. Bob. It's so, the Germans, though. The Germans, they make good radios. Of yeah, course. It has nothing Fox. to do with the Germans, just <laughs> Germanium. German engineering, Steve. Come on. Yeah, German. Germany, German. See, I got it right, but... Solid state. <laughs> 47. Yep. So, Solid state. Isn't that amazing? They were working on silicon, silicon transistor, uh, because um, silicon is a great conductor of electricity, and it has good you know, physical properties, but they couldn't make it work. Uh, in fact, this was uh, Shockley was working with the silicon transistor, couldn't make it work. He eventually abandoned the whole project and then told his uh, his two people who were working for him essentially. All right, you guys work on this. So so they worked on it. They uh this was John Bardeen and Walter Bretain. This is at Bell Labs in the United Bretain. States. Bell Right, you guys know that Bell Labs may invented the transistor, right? I thought that yeah. was yes, common knowledge. That I know. Uh so that they were working at Bell Labs. So they shifted to germanium and they got it to work. So they made the first transistor out of germanium and it became very popular, of course. Uh, uh, and and that dominated the industry, but everyone, but it was imperfect. The the big problem with the germanium transistor is it it wasn't as as rugged and it didn't withstand heat very well. So uh, if you had like a car radio with a, tra- a car ra- transistor radio and the car got too hot, your radio would stop working because the, the germanium transistor would crap out. Mm. Uh, but but in 1954. A, the first silicon transistor was demonstrated, and it became immediately popular. It took a while for the industry to shift over, so the germanium was still being produced even until like around 1970 or so. But the, the silicon very quickly eclipsed germanium. Uh, and then Shockley, Bardeen, and Bretain all shared a Nobel Prize. Today, um, obviously, the silicon transistor is still um, you know, now part of the integrated circuit is still uh, very, very popular. Uh, but germanium is making a bit of a comeback. Germanium has been used in, in very specific applications because it has some properties that are better than silicon. Uh, however, uh, a recent 
semiconductors are being made out of a combination of silicon and germanium. And so you sort of get the best of both worlds if you combine them together. There's also, you may have heard of the... Gallium arsenide? The gallium arsenide transistor. Yeah, that's another one. So let's talk about the last one. Yeah, so number three, mercury is the only element that is a liquid at room temperature. That one is fiction. There are actually two elements. Is it bromium? Bromine. Bromine. Yeah. Oh, I knew it. How did you know that, Jay? (laughs) Steve, it's very rare when I absolutely know that I know one of the science (laughs) of fiction. (laughs) Without reading, this is without reading recently. Of course, I didn't read the book that you're reading. I just remembered that. Carl mentions it. I remember that there were there were two elements, and I remembered bromium. I I remembered it wrong. It's bromine. Bromine. Bromine, Yeah, it's a damn close. Three hundred episodes is bound to happen. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, bromine is a uh, like a reddish brown glistening uh, liquid at room temperature, which is very toxic. I love that stuff, and this the way this book is organized because you know the the vertical columns in the periodic table. They have the same number of electrons in their outer shell, and therefore they have similar chemical properties. So germanium is right below silicon in the periodic table. So, of course, they have very similar properties. And, and of course, Bob, you know what's right above silicon is carbon. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he goes into the whole discussion of you know, silicon-based life, life because it has the same uh-huh. you know, number of electrons yeah. in its outer shell as carbon, but why that won't work because despite the fact it's bigger and it can't contort in the same shape as carbon, etc., and there's tons of stories like that. Like, this guy makes me wish that I had had him or someone equally awesome as my chemistry teacher in high right? school. Right? Yeah. Rebecca, I was thinking yeah. the same thing. I, 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 I struggled through my chemistry class. It was like I a had torture. Three and it different, have been. I had three different teachers for chemistry in one year. They kept getting fired, and each one taught... As, like the opposite thing and at the end of the year the oh, school great. felt sorry for us and just passed us all because we complained that's like the dark arts master at Hogwarts <laughs> right? yeah I was just going to say that I was Wait, thinking the one. same thing oh my uh, god we are such nerds oh my god <laughs> alright Jay do you have a quote for this week I have two quotes this week because I couldn't pick between them and I'll because tell you why because, so, so it was the, a tie like Vietnam well both of these quotes were were written by listeners. Oh. And I tried to put T's in the word written, and it was difficult right then. <laughs> written. <laughs> written. You ever hear people, ever don't, hear people don't pronounce the word white? your glottal stops. They go, they say, white. White? What? Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton. All right, so this is, uh, the first quote is from a guy named Sean McFly. Really? McFly? McFly. McFly. Oh, my God. That's another reason Hello. why I wanted to read this. Oh, man. Hello. Poor guy. So keep in mind, Poor he wrote guy. Sean. Are you kidding? He has the chance to name his kid Marty McFly. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Well, you have to choose your last name, right? I mean. yeah. Homeopathy is the idea that we just cured the world of terrorism by dumping Osama's corpse in the ocean. That's <laughs> <laughs> good. Sean McFly. And this next one, <laughs> the person's name is Stephanie Beach. And the quote is, I believed in reincarnation in my last life, but I'm not too sure about it in this one. Stephanie Beach! Well, thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Thank Surely. you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. And Come until again. next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. 
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice. <laughs>